Hey everyone, in this installment of the Primate Cast, an origin story from Dr. Elisabetta Wisselbergi on being a primate and becoming a primatologist. Evolution. Communication. Cognition. Conservation. Behavior. Primatology. Primatology. Typically primates. Become the monkey. So, hello again, and glad to have you back in the audience for this, the Primate Cast number 68, which is being released on Friday, July 1st, 2022. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, from Kyoto University's Wildlife Research Center, and today's podcast is taken, again, from our International Primatology Lecture Series, The Past, Present, and Future Perspectives of the Field. Uh, this is the brainchild of Dr. Michael Huffman, as I want to say. And like our normal programming is brought to you by PsychASP. The main goal of the lecture series is to share the origin stories of experienced practitioners of primatology and its related fields. To do that, Mike Huffman's invited a revolving door of renowned primatologists to join us on the program and share their own stories with us. The Primate Cast is happy to be able to share those stories right here on the podcast. We hope you enjoy them as much as we do. Now, unlike our normal interview format, these lectures are being done as part of a PSYCASP seminar in science communication, which is aimed at grad students here at the Primatology and Wildlife Science Program at Kyoto University. So what you're hearing is a lecture from each speaker that was recorded in Zoom and who's generally also showing slides. So there may be some references to visual aids that are obviously not available in podcast format. But uh, for anyone wishing to see those um, and see the speakers presenting with their slides, we invite you to check them out on the SciCast YouTube channel. Now, in the fifth podcast in our IPL series, uh, we feature Dr. Elisabetta Wieselbergi, who spoke to us back on October 13th, 2021. Dr. Wieselbergi is the research director at the Institute of Cognitive Science and Technologies, uh, which is part of the National Research Council of Italy. Um, and she continues to act as a research associate research scientist there uh, to this day. Now, she's probably best known for her work on cognition and social learning in capuchins, uh, and especially as they relate to the amazing use of hammer and anvil type stone tools, uh, which they use to crack open nuts. Everyone should Google that immediately because it's fascinating um, and has huge implications for cognitive evolution in humans. Dr. Wieselbergi is also the author of close to 200 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, and she co-wrote the 2004 book from Cambridge University Press called The Complete Capuchin, The Biology of the Genus Cebus, alongside some other giants in primatology, uh, like Dorothy Fergazi and Lynn Fedigan. For anyone who wants to know more about Dr. Wieselbergi's research, I recommend checking out uh, her Ethos Cebus project. You can Google that, E-T-H-O-C-E-B-U-S which is a research project dedicated to technology and behavioral traditions in these wonderful little primates. In the podcast, Dr. Wieselbergi runs through her background and how she got into primatology. She highlights the importance of serendipity in that process, like so many of our speakers do. Uh, she also describes why a capuchin at the Rome Zoo was smashing peanuts with boiled potatoes and making a huge mess for everyone, um, which, by the way, provides some foreshadowing for her astonishing discoveries later in her career. The second half of her talk details her work on capuchin tool use and social learning. So, as usual, here is Dr. Michael Huffman introducing Dr. Elisabetta Wieselbergi. Thank you very much. Um, Elisa, welcome. It's a, a great honor and a pleasure to be able to invite you to, to speak today. I'm sure the audience has been waiting with um, much eagerness to hear what you have to say. I'll just briefly... Um, say a few words. First thing is to sell 
um, the, the book that Elizabeth was um, very involved in putting together several years ago now. I, I remember getting emails from, from Elisa and Linda Fedigan saying that they're locked up in, in, in this little house somewhere and they're writing about capuchins and it'll be the best book you've ever read. And that's what it turned out to be. For anyone who wants to know anything about capuchins, then you need to, to go to this book. Um, personally, I've known Elisabetta for about 25 years, a little bit longer maybe. Um, and every year since we met the first time in Italy, my wife and I have been to Italy and we, we've met Elisabetta there many times and we've, we've very often enjoyed her, her warm company and it's been a, a pleasure knowing her. And um, I think you'll all enjoy what she has to speak about today. And just one more plug about, about the research that Elisabetta and her colleagues have been engaged in. You'll, I'm sure you'll hear about it today because it's so central to the work she's done and it's such an important part about primatology. But when their work on stone tool use in capuchins first came out, they just kind of left the, the chimpanzee world in the dust, sort of speak. They did such detailed work, such advanced technology and different things to look and so many different aspects that I was just really, really impressed. And I, at that point, I realized why they call capuchins the apes of, of, of Latin America. They're, they're really a, a smart species and no one can tell us better how smart they are than Elisabetta. So I'll let you tell us about your, your, your life and your career. Thanks, Mike, for your nice work. I'm going to talk about a little bit my story. I was born in Aosta, close to the Mont Blanc that everybody knows in the world. And I grew up, I would say, rather happy in nature, in the woods, close to the rivers. And I liked animals, no doubt. Look at my happy face. When uh, I started to think about what to, study, what to study at the university, I, I really didn't know because there were many things I liked. Thus, I started to ask myself, when am I feeling good? When am I happy? What fulfills me the most? What I like in life? And I realized that one, um, there was something that always made me happy, no matter how I felt. And this was nature, being in the middle of flowers, rivers, animals, if possible. This was really what I liked in life. So I ended up studying biology and animal behavior. And I did my thesis at the University of Rome, La Sapienza, on something that I didn't like very much, but was okay. That were the grasshoppers and the phenomena of cryptism and mimetism in grasshoppers. Soon after, I moved to Pisa, to the Scuola Normale Superiore, which is a very prestigious school with a very prestigious mentor, Professor Floriano Papi. And there I started to really uh, be involved in research. I studied the orientation 
of homing pigeons and uh, um, feral pigeons, rock pigeons, those that lived in the wild. And I compared their abilities. I looked at the, the uh, magnetic orientation of these birds and several other things. But I soon realized that uh, I wanted to be back home. That means to, to be in Rome the rest of my life. And for this reason, I had to change topic. And I brought my fellowship with me to Rome, where I moved to the Institute of Psychology of the Research National Council, the most important research institution in Italy. And I uh, started uh, as a junior researcher to collaborate in a big project between the Research National Council, the University of Rome, the Institute of Health, uh, focused on food neophobia to control the urban population of rats. So something very interesting from my point of view and also useful for the society, something I really liked it. And I worked on it like crazy, trying to learn all possible things for one year. Then the people that uh, uh, run the project, the senior scientists, had the discussion and the final fights. And all of a sudden, without even telling one word before the decision was taken, the project was canceled and I had nothing to do anymore. So this was really a sad uh, circumstance. And uh, I went to my director, uh, Raffaele Misiti, the director of the Institute, and I asked him, well, what should I do? I mean, everything ended all of a sudden, what should I do? And he told me, I am the director of a research institute of human psychology, the closest animals to humans, are the non-human primates, go to the zoo and study them. Wow. I thought, how can I do this? I mean, what can I do at the zoo? My director is crazy. But at the same time, I needed my fellowship. And I said, why not? I mean, I like monkeys. I like all kinds of animals. Why not to try? Perhaps I will become a primatologist. So this was really a strange beginning, I think. But at the zoo, there were several nice animals to study. Some, there were a brand new colony of Japanese macaques that just arrived from Japan in the Rome Zoo. And uh, unfortunately, there was also a mother that didn't uh, take care of the baby. So there was a hand-reared newborn macaque to raise and to learn from. And I studied the motor development and the cognitive development of this uh, young um, monkey. And there was also a hand-reared gorilla, which provided me with the opportunity of do something experiment on special um, uh, uh, tasks. So, at the end, there were many research opportunities. And I thought, lucky me to have gone to the zoo. But of course, we're 
really the beginning of the of uh, of for a scientist. I mean, I didn't have anybody to learn from. I didn't have a teacher. And the next phase of my life was really of despair and a big need for learning. Despair because I felt alone. In Italy, there were no primatologists interested in behavior, nobody to learn from. So I told myself I should find human and non-human primates to learn from. And I felt like a, a scribe in the Egypt time, looking for an Amadryas baboon to dictate important and smart things and write them down. So I really was looking for somebody like a god. And I, I'm not exaggerating when I talk about despair. I really felt extremely isolated. But of course, I looked in the literature. I read a lot of papers by many primatologists, and I chose some of them. And I wrote some of them to ask whether they could invite me to spend a period in their lab with a fellowship. And many answered. And among the many that answered, I must say, there are still primatologists that I like very much, like Hans Kummer, um, Menzel, Rambo, and others that were important, Rosenblum, that are still uh, highly valued from my point of view. But I ended up in California at the Primate Center. I thought there are more opportunities to see different kinds of monkeys working with Professor Bill Mason. That was a real mentor for me. And I also found two monkeys, two species, the titi monkey and the squirrel monkeys, with whom I did my first, uh, I must say, very interesting experiment. I worked uh, with the two species, comparing them on problem-solving um, success. And what I found in this study that I think affected my, uh, my career later was that, of course, titi monkey do much worse than squirrel monkeys in many of the tasks, but not because they are less quotation intelligent, but because they are just less arrogant, less uh, destructive, less uh, prone to explore everything. Titi monkeys are shy, are reserved, they act in pair, the male and the female together. So this style of approaching the task made this species less successful. It's not a question of being less intelligent. Well, as I was telling you, monkeys can uh, teach you things. And this is what simia docet in Latin means. And Capuchins told me and taught me many, many things during my career. And why so? Because at the entrance of the zoo, before reaching the macaques, there was a small group of Capuchin monkeys. And I always looked at them before going to the gorilla or going to see the macaques. And especially there was one young adult male, Camello, that was particularly nice. And uh, 
once I saw that he was using a boiled potato to crack open peanuts, shelled peanuts. So something completely, I don't know, crazy, unnecessary, because of course the boiled potato smashed and perhaps the peanuts too, but was not a very necessary behavior. So I ended up in studying together with a colleague, the nutcracking behavior of this monkey, Camello. And uh, this was uh, a rather successful uh, um, thing that we did because we stated in this paper that in fact, capuchins are selective. If they have a better tool, they use a better tool and not a, a, a mashed potatoes or a, a boiled potato. So it was a step ahead. And of course, I fell in love with capuchins. So the first take home message, or by the way, this in Italy, I don't know if elsewhere is the same thing, uh, is uh, the symbol for being lucky, having fortune. And so I think that my career was fortunate so far. So, and this was true in many ways. I was only slightly goal-orientated, but uh, I had uh, the chance of witnessing important events. And this is exactly the same uh, concept that uh, Hoffman and also Zimbo mentioned in their talk. Small little events that change your life. And of course, I worked hard to exploit the opportunities. So in uh, phase two of my life, I started to become more international also uh, because uh, during my period in Davis, I uh, met friends and people that uh, showed me how large is the world and how many other primatologists there were. And I started with going at the IPS in 84 in Nairobi, where I met Dory Forgesi. And uh, Dory had the same... Bill Mason as a PhD professor and stayed at UC Davis just before I arrived there. And by chance at the IPS in Nairobi, we both had an oral presentation on tool using capuchins. We talked a little and promised to meet again before the end of the meeting for further discussion, but it did not happen. We both left for our field trips. But, and here again, I'm rather lucky, I was watching the flamingos close to the Lake Nakuro when I start seeing people packing to leave, packing their tent to leave. And one of these two people that I saw was Dory Forgesi. So I ran to her and uh, <laughs> in a few minutes, we outlined what could be the theme of a joint project that was later granted by the CNR. And uh, just to, to tell the young people how the world was at that time, consider that a proposal went by mail back and forth 
from Italy to United States. So it was not easy <laughs> to do elsewhere. So it took us a long time to, um, to write it. In this phase in which I was open-minded and visiting other places, I had a fellowship to spend three months in Kassel, where Professor Christian Welker had large, large groups of capuchin monkeys. And uh, there I did that, I first noticed that the monkeys did not have so many things to do in their cage. The cages were really empty. So I designed an experiment to provide objects of different types, wooden blocks of different sizes. And uh, um, in a second phase, I started to see whether any of these um, monkeys could learn to crack nuts. Okay, there was one individual, Toko, that uh, I loved very, very much because it reminded me of Camello, that uh, not only was uh, extremely happy when uh, given a wooden block, but learned in a, in a couple of weeks to crack open nuts. And at this point, uh, I must say that one of uh, the, the point that the many other primatologists always told me when I was enthusiastic about using in capuchins was that first, this was the byproduct of captivity. And in fact, in nature, I mean, there was only very old anecdotes of something similar to nut cracking but nutcracking did not occur in, in nature. And I started at the end of one of the papers to, to think about why this uh, nutcracking was not observed in, a, in natural condition. And I wrote, for arboreal monkeys, the chances of manipulating stones or other percussors and finding horizontal surfaces on which to pound are scarce. Therefore, the absence of observation of tool used to crack and open nuts can be tentatively explained by the scarcity of appropriate conditions for innovative behavior to arise. However, from my point of view, both cognitive abilities and motor skills of tufted capuchin monkeys permit the prediction that these species, if observed in field sites with nuts, stone, and anvils, would be likely to show innovative behaviors and to use for cracking nuts. And in fact, we knew from Izawa, a Japanese primatologist, that in nature, capuchins bang objects and uh, on surfaces on the knot of um, trees in, to, to crack them open. However, he did not notice, nor other primatologists, the nut cracking behavior with tools. Well, in Kassel, when I was uh, studying that colony of monkeys, I also see very interesting behavior. Before the acquisition of nutcracking, but even right after the acquisition, the monkeys were doing very unusual things. They were pounding the nut directly on the tool. They were pounding the nut by the tool. They were pounding the tool and holding the nut in their mouth. 
or they were pounding the tool with the nut above it. So in a very unstable position. And this was really interesting to watch. And the same with Dory Forgesi, we are doing other experiments in her lab in, in, in the United States. We saw, for example, the individuals that uh, try to extract glued nuts from a board by using a stick. So, I mean, capuchin seemed often to try the impossible, not have been a very clear idea of what is necessary or uh, useless to do with tools. Well, another good news, a primate center was built by the CNR to host the zoo capuchins. So the poor camello that had an awful cage at the entrance of the zoo moved to our brand new cages. So we were uh, able to do observation and experiments with this small colony of capuchins and a few individuals arrived later from zoo, from confiscated um, um, capuchins uh, by the, the government and so on. And what is important to say is that at that time, the behavior of capuchins was better known in the field than in the lab. And this was a very good opportunity to discover new things. So again, was a very lucky circumstance. And of course, given my overall ignorance, I had no preconcept about results and I was very naive and insecure. So I was, I would say, particularly open-minded compared to other primatologists. So most scientists, I'm reading now that there are so many errors of spelling, but uh, I'm sorry. Most scientists consider it to using capuchins unlikely and the byproduct of captivity. And I think that Camello and his group members, as soon as they arrived at our primate center, helped me to better understand the behavior. So I'm really grateful to this uh, small colony of uh, capuchins that the zoo gave to us. Well, at that point, I, I designed a new series of experiments that had to do with the tube task, a task that has been used over and over again. And of course, Camello was very good in solving the task. He did it in a total of 36 minutes. And I remember that uh, exactly when I did that experiment, Steve Sumi was visiting my lab and he was absolutely enthusiastic. Steve Sumi is always enthusiastic. But he said, oh, this is inside, it's marvelous. You should write a paper, send it to uh, the best possible journal. And I said, what inside? I mean, he had uh, the sticks, he had the nut. I mean, perhaps there are more parsimonious explanation of this behavior. And in fact, when I published the, the, the paper, I had a more parsimonious explanation as it's usually the case with me. I also added to the plain tube condition that you see represented here, condition in which they were, for example, sticks bundled together and you have to unbundle the sticks to use them, sticks blocked, or short sticks 
that you should place one after the other. And my capuchins overall were successful in these conditions. But what was interesting to me again is that they made errors. And the errors were rather, I mean, unexpected. They used the tape of the bundle instead of one of the stick. They inserted one short stick on one side and the other on the other side, instead of adding one after the other. And these errors were not only in the very first trial, but they kept, I mean, it's true, we did not test the capuchins long enough, probably, but were not, the errors were not dismissed immediately. And we were also interested in, uh, in seeing, but what other uh, primates, what chimpanzees or children would do in a similar condition. And we carried out a series of experiments with the chimps and children. And we discovered that in fact, in both cases, the errors disappear much quicker than in, uh, in capuchin. So there is a difference among the species. And there is a difference also in another aspect that really um, liked and interested us a lot. That is the learning, how children learn to solve this task. And our children helped in learning and learning is quicker if they are shown how to do it. And this is a long series of experiments in chimpanzees in capuchins and children that overall show that uh, for capuchins, the social influences are not a very strong help, for chimpanzee a little better, and for children above a certain age, this really makes a difference. Why for adult capuchins, I repeat here, it doesn't make a big difference. But again, we tested in the lab with uh, not so much uh, trials. I mean, it's not that we tested for one year every day, a couple of hours, as is the case for life. We also did another series of the experiments in which we compared apes, capuchins, and children. It was the trap tube. In this case, the stick has to move a reward, not toward the trap, but toward the end of the tube so that it can get out. Of course, if you insert the stick always on one side, since the reward is placed on this side or in this side, you will have a 50% chance of success. But for capuchins, we had a very smart individual, Roberta, who did highly above chance, did very well, learned the rules, here you can see how cautious she is in moving the reward toward the end of the tube. And here you can see that uh, this happened in the first 70 trials. He is making errors. He's uh, pushing the reward toward the trap. But after about 70 trials, she became highly successful. Here is a young chimpanzee that does exactly the same errors of, uh, of Roberta. And uh, just to sum up, chimpanzees do better than, uh, than capuchins. 
and they also are not um, inclined to make errors or to use the uh, previous rule when the trap is above the cube and is not necessarily to avoid it anymore. Uh, okay, second take home message. Describe the results of an experiment in terms of success, but think about failures and what they mean and be cautious in your interpretation. Well, Capuchins fail in learning about uh, how to use or, uh, but what happens in, in daily life when they have to learn about the quality of food? Do they pay a lot of attention to what others do? Apparently, yes. I mean, monkeys watch each other all the time. We carried out a long series of experiments on socially biased learning about food. We look at food preferences, food aversion, responses to novel food and social influences, together with Dorothy Forghese, Elsa Dessa, Gloria Sabatini, and many, many other students that uh, did experiments in the lab and some in the field as well. And again, to sum up, in contrast with what seems the most uh, uh, plausible um, idea, capuchins pay a lot of attention to others feeding, but do not learn by watching them what to avoid, for example, or what is preferred. Is in fact demonstrated in several experiments that is the uh, personal feedback that the individual has from its uh, digestion process and uh, amount of energy acquired uh, by eating the different food that he learns and he uh, arrive to have a scale of preference among food. At the beginning, likes most, uh, most full of sugar, but then each individual learns to um, prefer the most energetic food. And it doesn't, it's not different if the individuals are alone or the individuals are presented with this new food in a group. So this, I think, changes the idea of thinking to uh, the process of uh, food preferences acquisition or food aversion acquisition. We also did an experiment on food washing. And I want to mention this only because I know that there will be on primates soon a special issue in honor of Professor Kawai that we all uh, read and appreciated during the entire life. And this um, contribution written by Dori Forghese and me is about our experiments done in 1990, in which we showed that uh, in captivity, uh, capuchins and crab-eating macaques quickly acquire this behavior in it's a couple of hours. So it doesn't seem so, so difficult. And also it didn't seem that the social influences were very um, important. Okay, in Rome, we did many other things. We looked at the sexual behavior and physiology of capuchin monkeys. We looked at the facial expression and what they mean. We did many other research projects 
carried out by other colleagues and by me. But unfortunately, there is no even time to mention them today. But you can find most of the references and uh, descriptions of this experiment in our website. The next phase for me and Dory was, okay, what to do next? And we did exactly what uh, Mike told us before. We looked for a friend expert in uh, the biology and behavior of capuchin monkeys in the wild. And we decided to write a book. And in 2004, Cambridge published the complete capuchins that is not complete anymore, of course. And this was a tremendous effort. And uh, if you look at the main point coming out of the book, you see that, I mean, capuchins are really widely distributed. There are now, we know, two genus, Chedbus and Sapagius. They have a long infancy compared to other monkeys. They have a long life compared to other monkeys. They are more encephalized than other monkeys. They are omnivorous, they hunt, they eat uh, birds, uh, rats, uh, lizards, and things like that. They extract tubers as a, a very nice study by, um, by Valentina Truppa and his student has shown. They have an enormous behavioral plasticity, but still they are so far from us. 35 million years ago, we have a common ancestor. And they are, of course, uh, to use it in captivity, but exactly when we were finishing the books, there was a short paper writing about birds and publishing two pictures of capuchins cracking nuts in Brazil. And we had just the time to place a few, few pictures in the book and uh, ask the people for more news. And this was very fortunately, because a dream could become true. Well, this is the, I think, the best phase of my life because we started to do field work to look at Tullius behavior in the wild. So in 2013, there was the first expedition together with Patricia Iser of the University of Sao Paulo. And right after, in 2014 at the IPS in Hanoi, we were already three good friends working together for the rest of our lives. And we set a project called the Itocibus project. At the time, the genus Sapagius was not recognized yet as distinctive. And uh, our field site is here in the middle of nowhere. And in this Fazenda Boa Vista in Piauí, we started to look at this uh, unbelievably nice and interesting behavior, the Tullius behavior. We studied two different groups of capuchins and we were able to do field observations and at the same time field experiments, something really new as uh, uh, Mike Huffman was mentioning before. So we did the observation of spontaneous behavior, ecological data, ranging patterns, socially biased learning, feeding behavior, and at the same time, experiment on stone tool selection, nut positioning, kinematics of strikes, tool transport, kinematics of transport, 
we were even able to weight each individual and to know how they grow through time. Nobody before had a body mass taken from wild capuchins. And, not, and this is true for the vast majority of monkeys in the wild as well. Well, the two groups were habitually using uh, stone tools around the year. And uh, we had a provisioned group to which we gave a little food so that they visited an area where we were able to do experiment in a non-provisioned group. I mean, the food was very little in a non-provisioning food. And you can see that the group do almost the same uh, um, frequency of two use over the months. And what they were cracking, the most cracking was done for these pole nuts, 86%. And two use accounted was rare. I mean, was not extremely frequent for 1% of the time budget. These nuts, however, are extremely interesting because they are very, very hard. They have a wooden um, kernel that for some species is uh, uh, 20 times harder than that of walnuts. It's similar to the hardest nuts that the Thai chimpanzee crack. And these monkeys are the size of a cat. So imagine the effort and the skillfulness necessary to crack them. Well, what is important about our results is that in Fazenda Boa Vista, monthly frequency of two use is not correlated with fruit availability or insect availability. In many field sites, capuchins have less food resources than in Fazenda Boa Vista, and they do not use tools. The capuchins use tools in captive condition with food abundance. So the idea, the common assumption that tool use is due to food scarcity, is prompted by food scarcity, does not hold in Bazenda Boa Vista. And what is interesting is that in Bazenda Boa Vista, capuchins have a high degree of terrestriality, spend a lot of time on the ground, much more than in other field sites. The presence of the necessary elements for stone tool use is there, there are stones, there are encased food items, there are anvils, and the food is rather abundant, and there, are, there is a lot of free time. It is more abundant in Fazenda Boa Vista, the food, than in other field sites that have been studied so far. And in fact, the kids play much more than in other sites. So there is free time. So this suggest that uh, it's not necessary for survival to crack open nuts, but it's something that capuchins do and like to do because it's a good food to eat. And uh, um, also in the case of chimpanzees and um, of orangutans, there is a, a live discussion about the role of terrestriality in prompting to lose. And also the, uh, not, that uh, food scarcity is not uh, uh, absolutely necessary to uh, elicit tool use. 
And of course, I mean, this condition, high degree of terrestriality presence of uh, the necessary elements for stone to use is exactly what I wrote in 87. Okay, the third take-home message. Assumptions are not necessarily true. Tool can be present and or emerge not only to survive, but other factors like opportunities play chance may promote it. Okay, Capuchins in Fazenda Boavista select the stones that are used to crack open the nuts. Salen, Fazenda Boavista is full of sandstones that are not good because they crack when used. Quartzite and sealstone are extremely, extremely, extremely rare. But capuchins look for this kind of stones when they have to crack the nuts. We did an experiment in an area where capuchins come, the provisioned group comes, and we selected one individually, hopefully when others were not uh, uh, close by. We presented a choice in a choice location, two or more uh, stones to choose from. And the capuchin had log anvils where to go and crack the nuts. And we tested um, many individuals in this task and uh, presented the natural hammers, artificial hammers, two identical hammers of different weight and other conditions. I'm not the time to explain everything here. The point is that the vast majority of subjects were always successful. Some of them had some failure, but in fact, the, our nutcrackers immediately use a non-friable tool and prefer to use the non-friable tool than the friable one. They looked for a, a weight that was sufficient to crack the nut. And uh, they did so also when the stone presented were completely new and had, for example, characteristics not easy to distinguish because they were identical but they differ only in the weight. So they learned to hold the stone or to um, um, uh, touch the stone with the finger to listen to the noise and choose the full stone that was heavy and use it. So our experiment, I'm sorry that you didn't see it, but again, you can find it uh, on our website. Demonstrate the tool selection takes into account multiple physical property of the percussor as friability and weight, and dismiss others as appearance and size. The observation of spontaneous behavior with pole nuts and cashew nuts provides convergent evidence. As far as it is known so far, the stone tool behavior of Fazenda Boavista capuchins is similar to that of the Thai chimpanzees. So the fourth take home message is, even if most colleagues have opinion different from yours, keep working hard and perhaps you or they can change mind. And this reminds me of the many discussion I had with the primatologists working with chimpanzees that really dismissed completely what capuchins 
could be able to do or do just because they were small monkeys from South America instead of apes. And of course, I mean, I think that uh, we worked hard and we proved that this is not necessarily the truth. Okay, now the last part, behavior tradition are the behavior shared among members of the group that are reliably learned by young individuals in part by social support. Of course, we ask ourselves whether stone uh, tool use is acquired thanks to uh, the fact that others already know how to crack open nuts. So its acquisition is socially biased. We did a very complex experiment, a developmental study that lasted a total of almost three years with five collection periods on 16 youngsters in which the observers were observing exactly at the same moment, both the focal youngsters, then what happened around the focal youngster within 10 meters from the focal um, youngsters, and especially looked whether some um, individual was cracking nuts. Here is a summary of the results. Youngsters are highly tolerated by nutcrackers. Youngsters are interested by the nuts and attentive to nutcrackers. Youngsters repeat some of the actions performed by nutcracker. And here are the actions. They manipulate nut, they percuss nut directly against hard surfaces as, um, and they also strike not with the stone. So these actions are socially biased. They become more frequent. Taking leftovers, what people usually ask, um, label as scrounging, is nine times more likely near an anvil. Of course, there are more leftovers. Three times more likely when someone else is cracking. Of course, there are more leftovers. And it peaks between one or two years and becomes absent at five years. And this is why, because the older individuals are less tolerated by nutcrackers than the very young ones. The rate with which youngsters manipulate, pounded and stroke nuts is significantly higher when others crack or eat nuts in their vicinity. And it's higher for at least five minutes after the nut cracking action by the expert individual has started. So this uh, frequency is higher for a long period of time. And even when they uh, stop cracking, the action uh, becomes slowly more frequent. And very interestingly, these actions are higher than expected also when the anvil site is without any expert group members, is uh, empty, I would say. So this facilitation occurs even if the uh, two users are not there. In some others, nut cracking and the sites of nut cracking are potent facilitators of, facilitators of youngster practice with nuts. 
So when others are cracking nuts, young capuchins devote their attention to nuts, not other objects, and their casts strike them for a while. On the basis of all the above results, we argue that the development of longer sustained attention to others and their own percussive activities supports the acquisition of nutcracking in capuchins. And that the iterative practice in socially supportive context characterizes the learning context for culturally acquired instrumental skills in capuchins, as well as in humans and in other species we believe. So the fourth and final take home message is that the probabilistic weak biases prompted by the social setting can have big impact on the acquisition of tradition. Wherever culture is involved, weak cognitive biases rather than strong innate constraints should be the default assumption. This is what Thompson wrote in his uh, PNAS article in 2016. Well, Many things about our project, the Tosibus project can be found in this DVD. I'm sure that Mike has a copy or I can send a copy to those that want to have it. And I want to thank many people, too many to be in a slide, all my colleagues and students in Rome, and here are just some of the names. My colleague Story and Patricia Iser and their student helped hard in Fazenda Boavista, and of course the monkeys, which taught me so much. And finally, my colleagues all over the world with which I exchanged ideas and built collaboration, and of course had fun. And here is a picture <laughs> in Arashiyama in 1991 with Mike Huffman. So our friendship is really um, 30 years old. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to all things primatology and wildlife science, to the conservation of species, and to the sharing of scientific knowledge. The podcast is hosted and produced by Andrew McIntosh, with artwork from Chris Martin and music from Andre Gonzalez. It is brought to you by the Center for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at Kyoto University's Center for the Evolutionary Origins of Human Behavior. Visit us online at theprimatecast.com and follow our social media feeds on Facebook and Twitter at The Primate Cast. Drop us a line anytime to say hello, to tell us what you think about the show, and to suggest future guests for the podcast.